Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 145, SpaceX Demo 2. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, flight controllers, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. Humans are about to launch from the coast of Florida for the first time in almost nine years. The last time humans launched from American soil was July 2011 on the final space shuttle mission, STS-135. Since then, even before STS-135, NASA has been working with commercial companies on the development of a new generation of spacecraft under a completely new model. In 2014, the spacecraft development was narrowed down to two companies, Boeing and SpaceX, with the goal of certifying their vehicles for transporting people to and from the International Space Station. In 2015, a cadre of NASA astronauts were selected to aid in the development and certification process, among them Bog Banken, Doug Hurley, Eric Bowe, and Sonny Williams. Over the next few years, they would help these two companies develop the spacecraft with the added perspective of being experienced astronauts who had flown space vehicles before, all with flight testing backgrounds. Eventually, in 2018, nine astronauts were selected for the first flights of these commercial vehicles. SpaceX is about to fly their first test flight with humans on board on a mission called Demo-2. There have been a number of test flights to get to this point, namely a demonstration flight without humans on board to the International Space Station called Demo-1, and an in-flight abort test to check out the escape engines in the event of an abort during ascent, among a number of other tests. The two astronauts flying Demo-2 are Bob Banken and Doug Hurley, both members of the original commercial crew cadre. Banken had flown on shuttle twice, logged a number of spacewalks, and has a background as an Air Force flight test engineer and a doctorate in mechanical engineering. In the Air Force, he helped with the development of new aircraft from the engineering side. Doug Hurley has a background as an expert pilot, racking up more than 5,500 hours of flight time in 25 aircraft, including time as a test pilot. At NASA, he flew shuttle twice as the pilot and himself was on that last flight from American shores, STS-135. Banken and Hurley are a superior duo for this flight test, providing an incredible amount of experience in developing and flying aircraft and spacecraft. As you can imagine, over the last few years, they've spent an incredible amount of time together developing the SpaceX Crew Dragon and training to fly it. And with that comes a certain dynamic, both in terms of relying on each other to ensure the safety and success of the mission and having a powerful camaraderie. I had a chance before their flight to ask them a variety of questions about their mission, but wanted to include the more fun side so you really know who these guys are and how they get along. So on the first part of today's podcast, here's a segment with Bob Banken and Doug Hurley answering questions about each other. We'll come right back after and dive into the intricate details of Demo 2. Enjoy. So we'll start with uh, with you, Doug. I, I want you. How would you describe your crewmate in th in three words? How would you describe D uh, Bob in three words? In three words, I would just say he's pretty sharp. <laughs> He's pretty sharp. <laughs> Perfect. Bob, how about you? How would you describe Doug? Uh, strong, uh, bold, and predictable. 
Bob, what is Doug's worst habit? <laughs> uh, Doug's worst habit? Um, I don't know. He's got a tighter sense of hygiene than I do, I think, is uh, probably his uh, worst habit. So I'm just trying to make sure that I keep up to his expectations kind of going forward. So do you really want it clean that well? Yes, I do. Yeah. Doug, how about Bob? His, what was the question again? Worst habit. His worst habit. Um, I don't, he doesn't have one other than. Yeah, you can't chicken out like that because yeah, I didn't chicken out. Yeah, so. I, what I would say is he, uh, I know almost instantaneously when I've not done something correctly. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He doesn't have a good poker face. Now in the same vein, Doug, what is Bob's greatest quality? Uh, it, it would be hard to mention just one. I would say his greatest quality is just his, uh, especially related to this, is his thoroughness. Uh, I mean, there is nobody in our office that comes close to him as far as just understanding everything that needs to go into a project this size. Now, Bob, is Doug an early riser or a night owl? Uh, Doug is an early riser. <laughs> I think that's required from the United States Marine Corps, right? You can't yeah. not be an early riser. Yeah. They, they turn you into one. <laughs> is he always late, early, or on time? Doug is always on time. Uh, Doug, is Bob, or, or how, I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Doug. Who yeah. do you think is more organized out of the two of you? Oh, that's me. No question. But I, I have, uh, uh, I'm borderline OCD, I think, in a lot of ways. So um, it's more managing that. But yeah, it's me. Bob, would you agree? Yeah, definitely Doug is uh, more organized than him, than, than I am, I, but I, I think there's a balance, you know. I think that uh, he's organized with a set of uh, information. I think I have a, a wider set of information. It just takes a while to find it. Bob, what's something that Doug always has on him? Something that Doug always has on him is money. <laughs> a credit card. He never gets to that situation where he can't reach his wallet like yeah. a T-Rex. Yeah. Doug, what is Bob's uh, favorite snack or even favorite meal? Uh, Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, of the two of you, who drinks more coffee? Uh, Doug drinks more coffee. Or more Diet Coke, rather. Uh, I drink more Diet Coke. <laughs> Doug drinks regular Coke. Yeah, I'm Just regular. like NASCAR. Yeah, regular. Doug, what is Bob's favorite pastime? His favorite pastime, I think nowadays, his favorite pastime is uh, hanging out with his son. Uh, and I think that's kind of for both of us, but uh, Bob, definitely, that's his. If he has a hobby, that's what it is. Bob, of the two of you, who would win in a foot race? <laughs> uh, it's kind of an interesting question. I, I would bet on it's me. It's a distance thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I would bet on me, yeah. but I think it's deceiving. Yeah. Yeah, Bob's deceptively fast, but maybe over a very short distance I could beat him. Yeah, definitely. If, if like, you're chasing a ball in a, in a baseball game, that's Doug's job, but... Uh, if you need to do a little bit further distance, it's probably me. I don't know. Yeah. All right, now we're going to see how well you know each other from a history standpoint. Doug, do you know what Bob's first job was? His first real job? First real job. <laughs> oh, I don't know. He probably had to mop floors somewhere. Bob, what's the answer? I think the, the answer for both of us is really something that our dads made us do. <laughs> and so <laughs> yep. those were the real jobs for us. And, you know, that's probably the hardest uh, boss that you ever worked for is your, is your father, and I think we both kind of grew up that way. And it's not fun work, usually. It's cleaning up, picking up, carrying the good stuff. Bob, what do you think Doug's favorite music is? 
<laughs> he likes country and western. <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, his favorite music is, is kind of uh, in the alternative rock uh, kind of category. You know, we both uh, kind of grew up with the 70s and 80s music, probably a little bit more towards the 80s music category. So we, we kind of have the same probably lexicon of, uh, of music that we'll probably listen to on orbit. So you think you would agree on a wake-up song? Yeah, I think yeah. we've, uh, I think I may have even picked one of his wake-up songs or coached his wife into what it should be for one of uh, his shuttle missions. Doug, if uh, Bob wasn't an astronaut, what do you think he would be? Uh, he would probably be running a, a large corporation, if I had to guess. Um, or he'd be a general in the Air Force. Bob, what do you think Doug loves most about his job? I think uh, Doug loves most uh, the kind of the excitement uh, and the opportunity that, that's in front of us. I think if you ask either one of us or any of our classmates back when we were test pilot school students what our dream uh, career or, or opportunity would be, it would be, you know, being test crew on a, on a new spaceship. And uh, we would have all probably been looked at as uh, if we were a little bit crazy if we started talking like that was really going to happen. And so I think this is his, this is his dream job. All right, now for the hard questions. Bob, what's one good thing about the Marines? <laughs> I think my, my dad was a Marine, and so I think that the, the best thing, I think, for me uh, with my exposure to the Marine Corps was kind of a sense of discipline and that focus and that uh, personal responsibility that, that I think he got partially from his upbringing but also uh, was definitely part of what the Marine Corps uh, taught him when he was uh, enlisted. Doug, one good thing about the Air Force? Uh, I would say, based on my experience as an astronaut, is the Air Force flight test engineers, which is, you know, Bob is one of those. I uh, flew with, uh, was fortunate enough to fly with Rex Walheim on, on another flight, and those guys just bring so much to the table from an astronaut perspective. I, I just think that they, they, in general, make the best astronauts that I've seen in my 19 plus years here. And so, uh, that program within the Air Force is, uh, is a tough one to beat as far as uh, getting somebody ready to fly a spaceship. So, Doug, name a time where you relied on Bob for something and he went above and beyond. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I would be lying if I said that didn't happen probably once a week. Um, you know, Bob is just one of those guys that is, uh, he's as competent, as smart, dependable, you know, whether it was in an airplane, you know, Bob and I probably have a thousand hours together in an airplane. Uh, so just backing me up uh, in the front seat uh, many times or helping make a decision, a weather decision or, or another decision. Uh, and then just especially this, this particular experience where uh, the last two years working, you know, the two of us working directly with SpaceX, just uh, what he brings to the table as far as um, the things we need to think about and make sure we have ready to go when we actually fly this vehicle. Um, it's it just on a weekly basis, it, it, it just uh, has really helped us get to this point where we're going to be flying in a month or two. Now, Bob, what do you think part of this mission that Doug is better at, maybe skill-wise, communication, recalling obscure procedures, something like that? <laughs> Obscure procedure. Obscure. Obscure anything. Obscure yeah. things out. That, <laughs> if we had to get some useful, useless information, Doug is always the repository for that. Just as a fun thing, he's the trivia master between the between the two of us. But uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that uh, def, definitely is is Doug's 
uh, strong suit and I think he brings to the mission that's uh, a little bit more challenging for me is that, uh, you know, he, he really is always focused on, on being ready for the exact next event that's in front of us. And so there's going to be a lot of firsts and we got to be ready to step into them as we go and, and, and accomplish this mission. And so I, I always know that Doug is going to be one step ahead of me and ready for whatever's uh, kind of coming in front of us. And so I'll, there might be things that I remind him out there. It's like, hey, let's throw this into the mix because we're going to have to consider it. But he's going to be the one who's ready a, a second and a half before I am. Now we'll end with both of you answering this last question. Um, what is one thing you're looking forward to doing with your crewmate on this mission, Demo 2? You want to do that one first? Or? Um, I think that the, the thing I'm most looking forward to uh, uh, is, is actually ending up in the water safely at the end of the mission and, and seeing how we both uh, go through that experience of uh, um, I'm expecting um, a little bit of uh, a little bit of vomiting maybe to happen in the yeah. end game. So when we yeah. get to that opportunity to do that in the water together, <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing to say, but that's the I'm looking for that kind of celebratory uh, event for both of us in the water at the end of the mission. Yeah, for me, it's it's just actually getting to fly the mission with Bob. You know, we've been close friends for uh, since we started as astronauts almost 20 years ago. So, you know, being lucky enough to get to fly with your best friend is uh, kind of a I think there's a lot of people that wish they could do that and we're lucky enough to do it we've spent a ton of time together and as we've talked about before uh, we could have gone two directions with that we could have gotten to the point where we didn't want to be around each other or you know we're closer so you know I think just the whole experience for me is uh, what we're looking for and then yes the celebratory vomiting at the end of the mission will be will be excellent <laughs> That's all I had. Thank you so much uh, for, for indulging me. That was, that was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed. I know I had a blast with them. Godspeed, Bob and Doug. Now the Demo 2 mission itself. I mentioned before that it was the first test flight with humans. Yes, this flight is the final flight before certifying the vehicle for regular transport to and from the International Space Station. So with it being a test flight come a few extra objectives that wouldn't be part of your quote-unquote normal operational flight. But more importantly, this is a chance to test a fully integrated human spaceflight operation between NASA and SpaceX. Now this is not completely new. SpaceX flies their Cargo Dragon spacecraft to carry scientific experiments, equipment, food, supplies up to the space station, and also back down, being the only cargo vehicle with return capabilities. And of course, NASA and SpaceX work very closely throughout that operation. Human spaceflight is a whole new ballgame. You have new systems to look at, a whole new set of flight rules, which we'll get into, and new communication loops, namely from the crew themselves. There's intricate coordination between SpaceX and NASA, but it goes deeper than that. NASA Kennedy and SpaceX are looking after launch in Florida. Houston is monitoring the mission after launch and integrating with the International Space Station. And SpaceX in Hawthorne, California, watching over the Dragon vehicle and communicating with the crew. So to go deep into this coordination, the mission profile, and all the work and training that's been done to lead up to this mission is Zebulon Scoville. He goes by Zeb. He's a flight director here in Mission Control Houston and the lead for this Demo 2 mission. He's been deeply embedded in the operations of this mission and literally writing the rules for the operation. So, here we go. The mission profile and integrated operations behind the SpaceX Demo 2 mission. Enjoy.
Zeb Scoville, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. This is awesome. I'm really excited. This mission is really going to uh, blow people's socks off, so I'm happy to be here and tell you all about it. It really is, and I'm excited to have you here specifically because this is this is the this is start to finish the intricate details of the mission. That's why I'm so excited to do this. And you're the person. You're the person in Mission Control. Are you? You're the lead for Demo Two, right? Yeah, I'm the lead flight director for the Demo 2 mission, and so there's all phases of flight from the pre-launch through the launch, and so we've got a team of people. There's several flight directors that are on this Demo 2 team, uh, and we've all been been training on the various, uh, from launch to docking, undock, and landing, and so the, it, it's a team effort, but uh, I'm the lead flight director for this mission, and it is an honor indeed. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's dive a little bit into your background to understand what it takes to be the lead for Demo 2. I want to understand a little bit about where you came from. I know when you came to NASA, you were in, I don't know exactly where you started, but I know at some point you were a, an EVA flight controller. Is that right? Uh, I, I, yeah, my first uh, full-time job here was uh, in the EVA group. So actually, you know, coincidentally, my first uh, exposure to NASA was um, at, you know, at, the, at the Space Academy and Space Camp in high school, came and got an internship while I was in college at Stanford University. I was studying mechanical engineering, and then I got a master's in aero, uh, aeronautical engineering and astronautical engineering. But it, during the internship at NASA, I, one of my first assignments was working on the X-38 assembly, and so here we were building a spaceship in my office that was designed <laughs> to bring crew members back from the space station as a crew boat. You know, that, that particular vehicle got canceled, but uh, it is, is pretty great to be working on a similar capability now with a crew, with a crew Dragon. Uh, as I got hired on full-time, I worked in the EVA operations group, so I was doing crew training and writing procedures. Actually, I was one of the lead flight, uh, lead EVA officers for Bob's first flight on STS-123 oh, and trained him on all, the, uh, on all the EVAs he did then, so it sort of come full circle. <laughs> Very cool. Now, what got you from there to becoming an International Space Station flight director? Yeah, so in 2014, I was selected uh, as a flight director. And so the flight director job basically uh, it requires you to basically be the lead uh, 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 and head uh, uh, controller in the mission control that oversees the, the mission risk, the mission execution at any given time. So there's sort of a structure that is set up to define uh, how the, the chain of command works within mission control. But in the International Space Station, uh, that has to incorporate uh, leadership across the uh, various control centers, whether it's in Scuba, Japan, or Munich, Germany, uh, Moscow, um, Russia. We've got our payload center in Huntsville. And so the Houston control center is the lead control center. And so as a flight director, uh, you're over, uh, you have the oversight to basically make the, the responsibility to ensure that all those different elements are coming together and working as a team to effectively you know, accomplish the science, get the cool stuff done on the space station, complete the EVAs, do the maintenance when it's needed, and get the crews home safely. You summarized it really nicely, but what was going through my head is what a massive responsibility that is. What made you want to pursue such a big responsibility, such a leadership position? What makes you not want to pursue that, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you, you know, it, it's actually one of the things I enjoy most about the about the job is, you know, there's an enormous amount of of prep work that goes into everyone's job getting ready for a mission like Demo 2, from the engineering teams to the program management to the operations folks to the manufacturing groups, all those going leading up to the readiness reviews and the vehicle preparation. But you know, once that, that vehicle lights is the control room uh, and the control, flight controllers in Houston and in Hawthorne and in Florida that really get the, uh, the decision-making capability when, the, when the, a call may be on the line and just being able to uh, 
to own that responsibility and, and revel in it and know that, that you're prepared for it with the training that you've had and, and you will find the unexpected that can certainly happen in that seat, but that's really what makes it fun. Let's zoom in on your responsibilities, your normal responsibilities as an International Space Station Flight Director. What are you focusing on? What are you looking out for, listening to, and making sure is happening in, in the room, in the uh, International Space Station Flight Control Room? Yeah, so we've been, we've been flying the uh, International Space Station in, in various stages of assembly and through operation for, for two decades now. And at this point, you know, it is still teaching us. We are still learning from that machine. Um, and we're at the point where we really have gotten many, many years of, of reliable um, science and utilization out of it. it you know, there are, there are parts that are always uh, speaking to you as they get older and, and might need to be replaced. You're looking for what is the, the, the worry bead in the room, who's, who's dancing in their chair a little bit, that, are, that might be watching a system. Um, but you know, as a flight director, you, can, you can't be an Uber flight director. I cannot be an expert on every system. I really have to be able to uh, count and trust on my team and be able to hear uh, their concerns, be able to look at, at the flight rules that we may have established that, that help us define how to balance risk in some cases, uh, and basically uh, bring all that together to be able to make the, the best balance of, of decisions to be able to execute the mission, get the objectives done, uh, but at the same time, know when we have to give up the objectives because something may be uh, affecting safety. And, and we have, in the, in the flight operations director, we sort of have a mantra of like, you know, crew safety, vehicle safety, mission success. And, and those are, you keep those as your sort of your guiding beacons that helps you uh, define how you're gonna wade through any, any situation that can come your way. I think what's nice about the position you're in is you have a lot of other flight directors to pull from their experiences, from their knowledge on how to run. What have you learned on just what it takes to, to be successful at that job? Wow, you know, since I was selected in 2014, I still feel like the new guy in the block sometimes. <laughs> um, there is just a legacy and experience within the flight director office um, that has established a culture, a um, capability and mantra. And, you know, this goes back to Chris Craft. You know, I, I got to met, meet him for a while after I was selected and had some good conversations with him before he recently passed. And, uh, you know, a lot of the same methodologies, the um, expectation of excellence and preparedness, readiness to sit in that room, that is our, our guiding principle. And so as we go on console, every day we show up prepared and we have that expectation for the people in our room. Um, but also it, it extends off console. And so when we talk about our readiness reviews, knowing that you know, the, the cultural expectation that people will speak up and, and be able to make a, make a statement about our readiness, even when, when that is a hard statement to make, but that collectively has been, has been enforced through the NASA agency and especially within, within the operations and flight director office. And, and we see that um, happening on the SpaceX side as well, so that we know when we say we're ready to launch, we're ready to launch. Yeah, it's supporting that culture to make sure those three things you talked about, you said crew safety, you said vehicle safety, you said mission, mission success. Yeah. That's, that's part of the culture that you're trying to lead. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you can't defer a decision in terms of responsibility yeah. to someone else that's not in that room. You can't defer the hard choice that you might have to make. You have to, you have to be able to make it yourself and you need to be able to defend it. But at the same time, like 
you know, Malcolm Gladwell has, has written books about, you know, the instinct that gets trained over time, and untrained instinct can be very dangerous, but, you know, mm. the, the years we spend in simulations and understanding and, and the systems and being able to tell the, the inflections on a flight controller's voice and, and so forth, those things make you know that when something doesn't feel right, it may not be, and listen to that. Uh, but if something feels right and you feel like the response is right and, and you based on the background, you can trust that instinct, and, and uh, that, is a, that is a great feeling sitting in that seat. It's this background that I'm that I'm loving to explore right now because I know we're really excited to go right to demo two. But I know there's a history with taking this culture, these ideas, these values that you're describing, and integrating with them with SpaceX. Tell me about some of your first days, first weeks working with SpaceX and trying to come up with integrated operations on how you're going to run this mission together. Uh, so I, my first, some of my first interactions with SpaceX were actually before I was assigned to demo two, before oh, wow. Crew One flew, I was in charge of the emergency operations, joint operations panel. So this is uh, a, an operations board that looks at the ISS emergency capability. So we have, we have three big things we look out for on the space station from an emergency perspective, fire, uh, depress, and toxic atmosphere. And so we have extensive procedures and flight rules uh, developed for these scenarios. We do extensive training. This needs to be the kind of training where crew doesn't need to look it up in a procedure as well. They have a memorized response to be able to get themselves going in safely. We want to make sure that we're doing that right because there can be variability in how emergencies might unfold and we need to be able to we expect that for anyone. So as a lead of that uh, emergency uh, uh, JOP, um, this was in the 2015 timeframe, we were looking at the onboarding of these uh, commercial crew vehicles and, and companies, and we wanted to make sure that as they develop their software, as they develop their hardware, as they come and dock to the space station, it is now not the space station and a dragon, it is a space station. They are essentially, for a period of time, they're a module on the space station and a lifeboat on, on the space station. And so we had to um, look at how to integrate our procedures, make sure that, that they were able to understand the types of emergencies we have to deal with, and being able to, you know, in some ways, mold and affect the the software requirements, the hardware capabilities that they have. But at the same time, as much as we were, were helping them understand that, you know, they have ex they have um, experience. They have a new way of looking at things, and so we're trying to also go into it with the open perspective of of what can we learn from SpaceX's way of of looking at a problem. And so we hmm. we definitely adapt on the NASA side to try to find the right compromise of of uh, efficiency, of um, sort of uh, taking taking advantage of you know the um, you know technology of the late, of the late 2020s here, uh, <laughs> you know 20 teens of like we don't need to go back to uh, the methodologies that we may have had when we started space station. There are other ways to be able to reach the same safe result, but but leveraging the technology, leveraging the software capabilities, leveraging the personnel capabilities to be able to make an efficient system. And, and you know, that evolved. From there, I, um, I had further interactions with SpaceX. I was the lead for one of the cargo missions. This was a CRS-10 mission. Hmm. And um, so this was uh, actually the mission director on that mission, uh, Brian Coffey, is, is sort of the equivalent on the SpaceX side of a flight director. Uh, we were both leads for that mission together. And so that was sort of my first opportunity to work with Brian. And uh, that was a, a very successful mission. You know, we had some challenges along the way. In fact, as it was running, coming up and rendezvousing towards ISS, the first time it actually had an abort and broke out and had to re-rendezvous, which is basically this scenario where, where it flies away from space station and has to you know, go up and over space station, come back and came back the next uh, uh, day and we were able to capture it and install it. Um, from there, I got um, assigned to uh, help out Scott Stover, who was the lead flight director for the Demo-1 mission. And so I sort mm -hmm. of, 
uh, followed on his coattails and learned, learned the crew dragon aspects of it through that. Uh, was one of the flight directors uh, supporting him during the demo one mission, and then followed from that right into the demo two, and it's been it's been a ride. Wow, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot there. I mean, I think the main thing that I took away was um, the fact that NASA's a little bit in a teaching role. Like you said, there's there's this culture that you're 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 sharing with SpaceX. It sounds like it's kind of a two way street though, where where SpaceX has this maybe more lean and agile, or maybe new. Uh, more technical, thinking about 2020, thinking about the future, and, and you're having this back and forth on how to work together based on the experiences of NASA and based on the some of the new ideas and and framework, I guess, that coming from SpaceX to make this mission come together. It is definitely a two-way street, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you know, I hate to sort of you know group us both into buckets of oh, SpaceX is the lean and agile one, and and yeah, because uh, that's that's absolutely uh, you know not a universal truth. It, it hmm. goes both ways. Where there are there, there are some cases where you know the experience we have with flying space station, you know, we may we may be able to have solutions to know that we have experience making this work. You know, everyone's everyone's. You know, it's not a competition. It's not us versus them. It is really how do we come together? And sometimes it's sort of the you know, there is some tension there, um, but that is really, you know, in any partnership, I think what promotes the end result of being a stronger capability. And so we challenge them, they challenge us. Um, you know, we may have more human spaceflight experience. Um, you know, at this point, they have more rocket launches than any other company. And so, you know, they have a lot uh, that they've learned through that that has been able to work. And so um, how do, you know, being able to, to, to work with their culture, which has a lot of benefits, also working with the NASA, uh, culture and, and everyone's really tried to innovate and, and be lean and try to make this uh, still stand up to our gold standards of safety, um, but be able to make it so that it's something that we can do repeatedly, something we can can do with reliability and with excitement. I mean, it, it is you, know, you look at this vehicle, you look at, at the excitement of the crew, the excitement of the flight control teams, and and it is there. So let's go into let's go into that. Let's go into the preparation. What it's taken to actually work together and get ready for this particular launch. There's a lot to it. What what goes into the preparation? What are you actually doing to get ready? Okay. So as a flight director, um, our, a lot of our main focus is on the operational aspect of mm -hmm. it. And so uh, we might not uh, be the engineering team that's building the hardware, but we, we might be on the team that's uh, looking at the requirements and then is, is like determining how the, a piece of hardware might get used. We're then um, trying to integrate that into its testing and certification with the engineering teams. Then we'll uh, use that to, to write the procedures for how a piece of hardware might get used. And, and you know, I'm, I'm using a piece of hardware as an example, but in some cases this may also be an operation like a rendezvous and a docking, and how do we um, use the capabilities of the vehicle uh, to write the procedures that have the checks and balances within there to, to um, as an operational team on console, prepare us for things that could go right and things that could go wrong. And so you never know what the problem is going to be. Every flight is going to have some issue, right? And so we want to be able to have things not just for today's team that's going to fly demo two, but we want to be able to take the experience we've written, codify some of that knowledge and some of those risk trades that we've had discussions about into our flight rules, into our procedures, into our training, so that five years from now when we're on you know, the eighth or ninth crew mission or what have you, those those uh, teams that weren't as intricately involved with the, with the development and demonstration, they have that background, they have that guidance on some of the things we've thought about as a starting point rather than having to learn that from the beginning again. So we'll, we'll write those procedures, we'll write the flight rules. Flight rules, as I mentioned before, these are documents that, that 
determine how we respond to certain situations. They help define what level of risk we have an agreement with the commercial crew program or an agreement with the ISS program on what the operational team can do. Certainly we know if it comes down to a safety situation, the team on council can do whatever they need to. And we actually have a flight rule that says this. If you need to do anything <laughs> you do, you know, do what you have to do to keep the crew and the vehicle safe. Um, but but uh, beyond that, it sort of defines, you know, these are our priorities. These are the risks that, that how we've defined them. And that's that contract that we've built with the program to allow us to go execute within those bounds. So we'll then go and practice them. It's simulation after simulation. And so we look at, at the launch phases, and this would be um, on launch day, we're going to have a group of NASA flight controllers at firing room four at uh, Kennedy Space Center. That's the same room that launched, launched the space shuttles out of. SpaceX is using that. That's where they're going to be controlling the uh, F-9 booster itself. They're going to have the room out in Hawthorne. We're going to have a team of controllers out there in their room with them as well. And that, that's where they're controlling the Dragon. And so similar to, to shuttle, uh, the countdown is, is really led out of Florida with the tie-in from, from uh, the Hawthorne Control Center and the Houston Control Center. As they hit T0, a lot of the Falcon 9 operations are largely automated at that point. Um, and so the Hawthorne Control Center uh, takes the lead at that point as it goes up through the ascent phases. Um, through that ascent, there's a number of calls we'll be looking for, and we, and we practice these. We really want to make them so that they are... Uh, there's a muscle memory with these calls. We know the timing of a call that might be there. We know what that call should sound like when it's supposed to be coming so that if it doesn't come right then, you know, we can we can start to look at what might be causing that. Or if we're getting a call different than what we expected, that sounds different. We can we can dig into what, what the vehicle might be trying to tell us. As that proceeds through the ascent, you know, there's a series of of steps through the ascent that will affect different sort of escape modes. And this would be, you know, if there's a problem on the F9 booster or with Dragon, there's a number of software triggers that are looking for events that may indicate something going wrong mm -hmm. and will automatically uh, escape the, the, the dragon off the top of the booster. Um, those have different stages based on the, the atmospheric pressure, based on the speed, based on, on the parachute capabilities, based on the thruster capability, all the way up through the ascent where it get, reaches the final, what's called the stage 2E abort mode, which is, which is they've gotten up high enough so that if they haven't escaped, they can actually escape into, an or, into a safe orbit. Um, mm -hmm. And so beyond that, you know, in a nominal thing, sequence, none of those escapes are realized, and they have the, the, the nominal engine shutdown called SECO, uh, and then they have separation. And, and from that separation, they're off of the booster, off the second stage booster, and they go to the activation mode. And so then we'll have other sims that will practice this phase of flight with the free flight. Um, then, we'll then as they go through that free flight, there's a variable period of burns they'll do to, to sequence towards ISS. We'll practice the stages with a separate, separate team controlling uh, for the rendezvous and docking phase. And so we might have you know, 10 or 15 simulations on each one of these phases, and we have a, a set of trainers that really sit in their, in their evil back rooms with their, with their pencils and trying to figure out how to trick us and how to get us <laughs> off guard. And really what they're, what they're doing is they're poking on those flight rules. They're trying to say, hey, have you thought about this? How does this flight rule play out challenge with this scenario? How do your procedures line up when faced with this situation? And they help us find holes that we may have. We then go back and fill those. In some cases, it may not just be our procedures and flight rules. It may be we have to make a software change. Maybe we need different voice access. Maybe we need a different set of telemetry on our displays. That's what we're really wringing out of those things. You know, I tell the team when we have these simulations, I want, you know, this is a place to fail. In the simulations, this is where it is safe to fail. Go do it. I mean, you know, we, we have the mantras of, uh, you know, you know, failure is not an option. Absolutely, in a simulation, failure is an option. That's what I expect. That's what makes us find our holes, and so we can plug them and fill them. 
Um, and so we'll do this for all the phases, really, you know, attached phase operations. When we get attached to ISS, we're not, you know, we're flying ISS 365 days a year, 24-7. And so we have to have the entire uh, flight control team, not just the Demo 2 specialists on console. You know, you, we, we can't simply fill that many shifts. So everyone, whether they've been involved with SpaceX or not, now needs to get trained on how to use SpaceX as an emergency lifeboat. If there is a, if there is an emergency, we have to be able to get them safely into the Dragon capsule, be able to keep them safe, and then be able to potentially even undock uh, in in that. In, it could be in the middle of the night on a Sunday, you know, <laughs> 2 a.m. And so uh, that's been an effort. And then, as, as I said, going into the undocks and and and. Uh, free flight away from station and, and the entry descent landing. We're splashing down in the ocean for the first time. We haven't put ocean uh, people in the ocean since the Apollo Soyuz landing. <laughs> and so uh, you know, that's a new operation in, in terms of the rescue and recovery uh, uh, process there. So typically when they land, they're going to land on the uh, east coast of Florida. There's a backup location they can land near Pensacola. Uh, SpaceX has their recovery vessels out there, and they've practiced and they've gone through training to be able to pull the capsule out, to be able to assess the situation of the crew, being able to provide them uh, medical support. You know, if there, if, if there was an injured crew member after landing, we have medevac capabilities to be able to get them back to a hospital. Um, you know, there's also situations where if they were to land off target or if they had to come down an emergency in someplace besides those planned landing locations, we work with the Air Force. They have a Detachment 3, which is responsible for rescue and recovery, basically globally. The, the Dragon can land anywhere in any body of water w within reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll be looking at, at where the forces are that can recover them, what the weather like is, it, it, what the weather is like around the globe, and we'll be able to help direct the crew to the nearest safe body of water. And so we have to practice with the Air Force to make sure they know how to get this, get the crew out of that vehicle and pull them out. So it's really a, a global effort across multiple government agencies and, and companies really to get this right. See, I feel like a lot of people zone in on, on just that launch, right? Yeah, I want to see the smoke and fire. This is a big deal to launch, but there's so many different parts of this mission that you have to think about its efforts here, it's, it's going on in California, it's going on in Florida, it's going on in Houston, you have to think about the globe, you have to pull in the Air Force here. There's just so many different considerations. And what you were describing before was you were describing simulations, you were describing ways to practice all of that and fill in the gaps of all these details that you've spent so much time writing, all these procedures, these step-by-step -step instructions on every phase of flight on what to do, uh, and all these flight rules. Um, maybe, maybe I might be oversimplifying this, but I like to think of flight rules as like if-then statements. So it's like if this is the scenario, then you're go, or then you're not go, you know, depending on the scenario. Maybe I'm oversimplifying. There are many cases where flight rules do do that. <laughs> yeah. There are some cases where where we know that you can't simplify it that much, and we and we have to say here are considerations for the risk there you because go. Yeah. we can't define exactly how it's going to fail for you in space, and so think about this before you make a decision. Yeah. In some cases, and, and that really puts it in the area of gray. But you know, in in, in the clean cases, the if then uh, certainly <laughs> is, is good guidance. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's taken a lot of time to get to this point, just based on what you're saying. There seems to have been a massive amount of planning. And even when you come up with a plan, there's just little things along the way that you didn't think about that you have to fill in those gaps. So just going through that process through, how, how many years was that? I mean, when did, you, when did you actually start this process of thinking about all these different elements? Yeah, so me personally, as I said, we were thinking about that you know, back when I, when I first started working on the emergency uh, yeah. joint operations panel, that was in 2015. But really, I mean, this goes back before that. I was I was a latecomer to the to the <laughs> uh, commercial crew uh, program with with Dragon at that point, and, and people have been looking at that for years before that. So that is this has been a development effort 
uh, since then and throughout, and, and it sort of evolved as the vehicle maturity in, improved, as the hardware became more defined, uh, we then would have to, we'd be able to have an extra level of fidelity and understanding of, of the exact operations to be able to improve the, the products going in there. But it's been, it's been years, years, and, and it is um, extensive, the brain power both on the SpaceX and NASA side and the, and the exhaustive, exhaustiveness that uh, people have put in and the dedication, it's, it's inspiring. Now there's a couple milestones from the time of this recording that we have to get through, and a lot of them, they're called readiness reviews. So it's, all, it's like, I guess it's a lot of people coming together and really verifying, like, are we ready? So what are those about? We actually just completed what is our stage operation readiness review cool. with the International Space Station program on Thursday, April 30th. And this was a review basically looking at the, the operations as they pertain to the interact, interaction with the space station. We also looked at the outstanding risks that we have with the vehicle, where there's open work, where there's forthcoming testing that we're expecting, mm -hmm. where we expect that to close out, how is the Dragon Gun interface with the space station, are the procedures ready, are the flavors ready, all that was sort of was discussed in those cases. We also go back and look at previous anomalies on, on the space station and see how that may apply to the vehicle coming up. We look at how how this is going to be compatible with the crew members that are on space station. Are there unique aspects we have to interplay there? And so you know, we're looking at the fact that once Bob and Doug come up to the space station, we're also trying to get uh, some spacewalks done during that time. There will be a, a Japanese HTV cargo mission that's coming up and bring some batteries. And we're going to take advantage of Bob's time uh, there as a trained EVA crew member to supplement with Chris Cassie and go get some of these new batteries installed. So in addition to all the test objectives of the demo mission, we're trying to weigh in also the priorities <laughs> of trying to be able to accomplish uh, other objectives with space box, robotic operations, see what we can do to, to get Bob and Doug up to be able to supplement the science capability on the space station um, and during that time frame. So looking at the other readiness reviews going forward, um, we've got a flight test readiness review with SpaceX on the 8th. Uh, we have a uh, commercial crew program flight test readiness review. And so this is looking at the certification work paperwork. This is looking at the hardware processing and any of the open issue tickets that, that have come up throughout the, the development and certification process and making sure all those are closing out. Then we go to an agency readiness review. And so this is uh, you know, with the, the NASA agency as a whole mm -hmm. and with SpaceX coming together on the 20th to be able to say, yes, we've, we've got our stamp that we're ready to go, our, our risks are closed. Or if there's an open issue and we're not ready, we'll say we're not ready and we need to you know, add some time to make sure we've got this mm -hmm. right. Wow, okay. Yeah, so a couple of those milestones. Let's go into the mission. You've already, you've already laid out a nice framework and some of the simulations, just practicing all of these uh, different parts of the mission. I want to dive right into the details. Uh, going with, I guess, following the crew uh, at the time that they're walking out. At this point, they have been quarantined for some time, and they're going to be walking out of the building, going to the pad. What's that like? Yeah, they've, they've spent... Uh, some time uh, in quarantine in Houston. They then get out, get on a NASA jet, takes them to quarantine in, at KSC. Mm -hmm. They have uh, astronaut crew quarters at Kennedy Space Center. They wake up that morning. They have breakfast in uh, in the crew quarters. They get a weather briefing. So this is about uh, five hours prior to launch. And so SpaceX will pull, look at the latest weather, uh, give them a briefing about what their ascent is going to look like, whether, what the probability is we're going to go to launch this day, talking about where they're um, where there's other good weather sites around the globe, if they if they have a, to have a, a, a um, re-entry after after they get to orbit, if there was an issue with the initial activation, we'll tell them, hey, you know, maybe the Bay of Biscay is looking good, maybe Cabo is looking good. <laughs> um, 
basically fill them in on that. Then the crew leaves crew quarters and they go down and get suited up. And so this is where they'll have their spacesuits. They'll get uh, put in those. They'll do some some leak checks. They'll do some comm checks, making sure everything's set there. They then come out of the ONC building and get in some uh, some of the transport vehicles. These are our Tesla Model Xs that then take them out to um, in, out to Pad 39 Alpha where they go and they'll ride the elevator up and, and across the launch gantry and get into the, uh, get strapped into the vehicle. And so along that way, as, as, they're, as the crew's sort of following through, there is a series of, of checks that's going on on the ground with the control hmm. teams, as I said, in Florida and in Houston and in Hawthorne. And so we're looking at, uh, at, at the preparedness of the Falcon 9 and the, and the Dragon capsule. So one thing that's sort of unique and about how SpaceX is able to launch their vehicles is they've, uh, in order to maximize the performance of the Falcon 9, what they do is they actually put the crew members in the capsule first and they'll arm, it, uh, arm the launch escape system hmm. before they fuel the rocket. They then put the fuel in the rocket at that point. That lets it uh, get in and stay super cooled and densified, which allows them to get just a little bit of extra performance to be able to get up there. Um, and, and from that point, we follow the countdown. That, that launch escape system arm and, and, uh, and uh, final fueling is within the last 45 minutes or so until we count down to uh, the final T0 where they have the launch. As I said, as, they, as they're coming up, lifting off the pad, uh, they'll go through, a, you'll hear a series of standard calls from the crew. Uh, mm. You'll hear the you know, stage 1A, stage 1B, um, those are, are referencing the different escape modes that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, will be, you know, there'll be calls from the from the um, SpaceX team talking about the performance and the trajectory of the Falcon 9 as it goes uphill. Uh, we'll hear uh, a staging call. But this is basically after the the first stage of the Falcon 9 with the with the nine engines uh, burns through its fuel. It will then separate, and they'll light the. The second stage is the MVAC engine, a single MVAC engine. That will continue from there up through the ascent until we get SECO, or, or our second stage engine cutoff. At that point, uh, the, the boosting part is done, and the Dragon will then separate from uh, the second stage. It's now in a safe orbit. So at this point, you know, in, in some, some missions, you sort of have the initial ascent phase and uh, you know, what's called your apogee, which would be sort of the highest point of your orbit. Um, it, it may put you off there, but the perigee, which would be the lowest part of your orbit, that may in some cases not even be above the atmosphere, so you have to do another boost burn to be able to maintain a stable orbit. Mm. Uh, on, this v on this mission, the uh, engine cutoff is at a stable orbit, so we have a, a, an apogee and a perigee that's both above, above the atmosphere and, and in a stable orbit. So we'll be watching uh, the initial activation, so this is turning on, on some of the systems. We'll be activating the, the um, solar panels and some, looking at how some of the radiators are working. They'll establish communications with, with the um, teeter satellites and so forth. We'll also then uh, be getting ready for, for a burn called a phase burn. And this, what a phase burn is going to do is that's going to set it up on a path to come to the space station. Hmm. Uh, the phase burn is going to be something that's going to sort of help it arrive at a certain time at the space station. And, and, and how that phase burn works is, if you think about it, the, the International Space Station is orbiting around the Earth, and it sort of has an orbital plane. So it's the, the plane that's drawn by the ellipse of the space station's orbit. Hmm. As the Earth is rotating around it, the distance between that plane and Florida is going to change throughout the year. Uh, huh. And so with that, what you have to do on some days, it may be very close. And so uh, as you launch into, the, into that orbital plane, it, you find that, you don't ha that the amount of distance you have to get to catch up to the space station is, is small. 
and you can get there quicker. In some cases, the space station may actually be on the other side of the world, and so you have to, to phase to catch up. And so what this means is you've got to be able to uh, uh, ride at a lower orbit, and that lower orbit causes you to uh, catch up on a vehicle in a higher orbit. And you know, One of the interesting things, I don't know if um, to sort of visualize this, when you go to the zoo or you go to a museum or something like that, sometimes they'll have those um, charity uh, things where you drop a quarter in, it sort of rolls around this spiral thing, and it sort of drops down to the middle yeah, of the hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the outside of that spiral, it, it seems like that quarter is moving much slower. Mm -hmm. And as it drops down lower, it's moving faster and faster and faster and has a, has a, uh, a quicker oh, uh, yeah. way to get around the orbit. So the same type of thing's happening here. As you're closer to the Earth, it's moving faster around, gets around, completes an orbit in a faster amount of time. Up at the higher altitude of the space station, it might be going... Uh, uh, slower, and so by staying at lower altitude, they're able to then catch up with the space station, and then uh, they'll do some final burns to, to get close into the space station. We get the uh, we get what's close to what's called the uh, integrated operations that happens at about a, a, an ellipse that's about one to two kilometers away from the space station, and with that, that's where the the, the near near phase rendezvous uh, begins. Okay, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of steps there, and I know so so you mentioned for. For launch specifically, you, you talked about you, you did mention Hawthorne and you mentioned Florida. Looking at all the looking yep. at the Falcon Nine, what are you doing in Mission Control Houston? What are you looking for prior to launch to make sure that the it's? Are you looking at the phasing or, or different parts of the International Space Station, making sure that it's ready to receive Dragon? The yeah, we have a, a series of launch commit criteria, and the okay. launch, launch commit criteria is a flight rule that basically says we need these conditions to be just so in order to launch. And so some of them are dependent upon the space station. So we need mm -hmm. to make sure space station is ready to receive Dragon. Are its power systems working? Are its life support systems working? Are its communication and navigation systems working? Those all will be, will be checks that we'll be able to give to, to SpaceX a verification that space station is ready for launch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, others, other than that, there are also uh, SpaceX uh, internal rules that have the similar launch commit criteria, and so mm. these might be: what are the what is the readiness of the Falcon? What's the readiness of the Dragon to be able to do this? What is the weather launch commit criteria? And so we'll be monitoring uh, their systems with them. We'll be listening to the calls they're making on on their internal loops. We'll com be comparing it to their internal flight rules. Uh, we'll also be uh, making sure we're, we're assessing the readiness of the rescue forces on any given nominal launch day. We also need to make sure that we've got um, uh, forces positioned with with aircraft and helicopters around the world to be able to uh, be prepared for a standby rescue if necessary. The trajectory part is all kind of mapped out well in advance, so we, yeah. we, we know that stuff. That's not something we really have to watch in, in real time. Sure. Uh, we are making sure that trajectory is clear, so uh, there is not a lack of orbital debris right. in, in low Earth orbit, and so we have uh, um, help from uh, our trajectory officers that work with the Air Force that monitor the orbital debris, and we're able to then make sure that, hey, on today, we're not tracking any debris in the ascent trajectory or in the orbital trajectory path, so uh, we'll make sure that's clear, and we'll report that to SpaceX. Okay, now now uphill, going going up into orbit. You're you're following along every step of the way, even from Mission Control Houston, right? Because you want you want the latest data at every at every step of the way. Yeah. So we're we're following and watching along. Yeah. Really, during that ascent, it is it is uh, SpaceX that is operating the vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're we're listening to the the calls they're making. We're listening to the risks we're having. If there if there was anything that was going off, you know, we're not going to be able to respond to you know necessarily during an ascent change change the the calls that the the SpaceX might be. We sort of have to be prepared. For uh, the eventualities that may come, if we have to, if we have an escape, when we have to go help rescue the crew, 
on, an, on a launch escape, uh, that isn't a place where they've got the SpaceX recovery forces positioned to be able to recover the capsule. We're counting on, on the Air Force and the Attachment 3 to be able to get them so we're prepared for those. We're looking at where they're going. Uh, listening to, uh, you know, anything that may, um, you know, sound off with, with any um, hardware that may be performing mm -hmm. as expected or not, we'll be listening to that. And then basically just making sure that, yeah, they got to the orbit that, that we were expecting. Yeah. Now, when you, they got to orbit, you mentioned something called activation and checkout. What are they activating? What are they checking out? Uh, so what, what you're doing, once you get to space, you have a, you know, the, the Dragon is now um, having to maintain a closed loop uh, life support system. It's really done that since the moment you, you put them in the vehicle and close the hatch. Mm -hmm. uh, but now all these systems have just gone through the violent shake of launch. <laughs> and so you yeah. want to making sure, you know, did everyone, everything survive and work throughout the launch? You know, it has... Dragon been able to establish uh, and verify its navigation um, uh, uh, system. So it's, it's able to look at the GPS, and it's got a good lock on the GPS. It's got a good lock on the, the TDRS satellites. TDRS is, are the communication satellites that NASA has out in uh, geostationary orbit. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of their prime communication paths for telemetry and huh. for voice. Uh, they'll be um, looking at, at communications over with ground stations as well. Uh, the crew, after ascent, they'll be able to, to get out of their suits and they'll be able to stow the cabin uh, for on-orbit operations. So they're really wearing their suits for a couple uh, critical phases of flight. Um, basically, during the, the ascent phase, uh, prior to docking, they'll put on their suits. When they get ready to undock, they'll put on their suits. And then during the entry, descent, and landing, they'll wear their suits. And so getting that stuff stowed, they have some footrests that they use during the ascent on their seats. You know, once you're in zero G and up in space, yeah. those footrests are really just sticking out in your way a little bit. So we'll take them <laughs> off and, and stow those. Um, you make sure the, the fans are up and running. Uh, if necessary, there's a toilet they can use. Maybe mm -hmm. they, maybe it's been a while on the long countdown day for them to get a food. They've got a, a chance to get some food and drink and so forth. So. So what is it about the suits? Um, what, you know, what is it about that part of flight that they actually have to have the suits on? What are the suits doing for them? The suits uh, are a, a system that's really integrated with the, with the Dragon vehicle, and, and mm. this is something that goes back, uh, you know, historically looking at some of the, the tragedies that have happened in human spaceflight before they've been caused or, or could potentially have been um, survivable if crew members were able to wear pressure suits during these, some of these critical phases of flight. And so a mm. uh, lesson learned from that, they're providing protection. If there was a loss of cabin pressure, they can hold pressure, they can keep the crew members alive. Uh, beyond that, they're also providing integrated communication. And so they've got, they've got uh, radios and headsets in, in them. Uh, also, if, if something were to happen, if there was, for example, a fire on board the Dragon inside, you're going to have a couple of things. You're going to have, obviously, the flames themselves, and so the, the, the suits are made out of a, a fire-resistant material. But additionally, they also have uh, the ability to provide clean uh, nitrox gas or even oxygen, and mm. so that's protecting the crewers from being exposed from a smoky, uh, contaminated environment as well. So there's a, there, after, I guess, that part, the launch, uh, you said they, they, they're able to take off their suits, they're able to kind of stretch, maybe use the bathroom, do a couple of these checkouts and activations. There is, I think, at some point in the near future of, of this part of the flight, a demonstration, and that's part of the test that is this mission. Demo 2 is a, it's a test mission, so what are they doing? Yeah, exactly. That's, the, that's a great way to put it. It is, it yeah. is a test flight. Yeah. And you know, we say that over and over again. And, and I think that, you know, anytime you do something first, you're going to learn something as much as we hammered out, you're going to learn stuff. And so one of the things we really want to, 
to demonstrate and, and, uh, and, and get some stick time with was flying the vehicle manually. You know, this is, SpaceX has done an incredible job building a vehicle that otherwise you know, is very capable of autonomous flight. In a, nor in a normal mission, you know, it will do all of the, the burns and rendezvous autonomously you know, with, with the assistance from, from the ground monitoring mm. those, those performance systems. You know, the, the crew uh, could, in theory, not have to do anything to adjust their trajectory or so forth, and, and the vehicle can almost ride them into space station. You know, on a test flight, we need to be able to, to demonstrate the capability for the crew to do these things when, it, when that system doesn't work. And so, mm. you know, SpaceX or uh, NASA, when we developed the requirements for the commercial crew program, one of the things we said is we want the, the capability for the crew to have manual piloting capability. And so we built this in, and what we're going to be doing this far field demonstration, the crew's going to take manual control, and on their touchscreen displays, they have a software interface where they're able, able to control the roll, the pitch, the yaw, and they can, they can do finite uh, thruster inputs through those in the inputs to be able to get clean rotational axes. And so they might start doing a maneuver to basically realign the, the spacecraft with what's called the local vertical, local horizontal uh, reference frame. And so if you think as the, as the dragon's circling, uh, uh, orbiting around the Earth, the, uh, the circular nature of that orbit causes the, the, the dragon to pitch about you know, four degrees a, a minute as it goes around the Earth. Oh. Um, and so uh, they're able to, to establish that local vertical, local horizontal as basically you know, level with the, with the horizon is essentially way to, is the way to level think Level with the it. horizon. Yep. And so they established that. And this would, this would be a, a contingency capability that they might need, for example, if some of the navigation equipment went down and the Dragon didn't know its orientation from left up, right up down. <laughs> this allows the crew to say, hey, here's the horizon. This is, you know, I'm pointing, I'm pointing forward or pointing back with the direction of my velocity. And so they then lock that in and commit it to the computers. And that would be able to, to help the, the Dragon know where it is so that it can then navigate on its own. In this case, we're not going to actually commit that to the, to the guidance system, but we're going to show the capability to do that reorientation, get lined up. And far, you mentioned far field. This means it's not close to the International Space Station. Is that what that means? Right, that's what it means. And okay. so this is in, in the, you know, as I mentioned, it's, a, it's a probably going to be a two-day rendezvous to get to the space station. It oh. could do it faster. It could be as, as short as six hours. Uh, typically, we expect it to be somewhere on the second day of flight that they'll be able to dock. So in that first day, there'll be some times where they're sort of coasting through between a few maneuver, maneuver burns, and we're going to take advantage of that time to, to do this test. And, and so since that's away from space station, we just call it the far field. <laughs> so they're going to do that test. I don't think there's much until... Uh, this is, like you mentioned, this is a longer rendezvous. I think at this time we're looking at about 19 hours, so there's a sleep period in there somewhere, right? There is, there yeah. is. Yeah, the, uh, you know, because of that phase angle between, between uh, where the Cape is and where the space station might be in, in that, within that orbital plane, we have uh, um, an opportunity where we know we can't keep the crew up for 30 hours and expect them to be sharp when they need to, to be executing the, the docking. And so we plan in to say, if you, hey, if the, if the rendezvous is so long, you need to put in a, a, a crew sleep period. Again, this goes back to flight rules. Flight rules yeah. say you don't want to keep a crew up and doing a docking when they've been up for 20 hours yeah. uh, on their duty day. And so uh, we, we put in a sleep period. Basically, the crew is able to, to put some window shades on the cabin. They, they put on some, uh, some earbuds that provide some white noise, let them go to sleep. They get eight hours of sleep, wake up in the morning, have their, have their coffee, and, and go dock <laughs> to a space station. All right. Dragon has coffee. Not bad. <laughs> they better. <laughs> they better. Um, is there any hap anything happening during the sleep period with the vehicle? I'm sure it's being monitored the entire time from the ground, but is there anything happening? The uh, the vehicle uh, as it goes through its rendezvous profile, uh, you know, we have to be you know be watching uh, 
where those burns are that need to raise its altitude so it doesn't stay at that lower altitude as described and sort of skip mm. by and miss the space station. So in some, in some cases, it's just unavoidable. We'll have to do um, some delta V burns, which raise its altitude to, to sort of slow down its arrival at ISS. Um, some of those burns might happen during the, the sleep period. You know, it really it comes down to what the trajectory looks like on the day of launch. But uh, we'll try to separate them and let the crew get some good night's sleep. Those thrusters can be a little bit loud. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in, in some cases, it's just unavoidable. We prepare them for that. And so other than that, you know, the vehicle's got its life support systems, its fans whirring, and its... Uh, and its computers watching its trajectory and so forth, and, and that's what's going on. What's nice is that they get a full eight hours, though. That's the, that's the, mm. that's the in the plan, at least. Yeah, I'm sure they won't <laughs> spend any of that looking out the window. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, so at some point, you got to wake up. I know wake-up music is a tradition in, in, in SpaceX. I don't know, or, or not in, in uh, NASA, wake-up music. I don't know if anyone's talked about it. I know I've asked the crew. They, have, they, they are actually in sync when it comes to the music that they like, so at least they're thinking about it. The, uh, yeah, on the, on the shuttle days, we used to wake up the crew yeah. uh, from Mission Control with wake-up music, and it'd be a song that might have been picked by the crew and, mm -hmm. and by, uh, by their family members. On, uh, on this mission, I'll, I just have to leave, leave, leave people guessing on that one. Good. All right. Yeah. Leave, leave, uh, leave it. No spoilers here. Uh, what are they doing as soon as they wake up? So they wake up. Um, you know, there's a period where sort of post-sleep, they get up and, and they're able to yeah, get get their meal in the morning. Um, check in with with SpaceX. They'll get a vehicle status to understand what's going on. And that's really at that point looking at at uh, getting getting ready for the rendezvous to space station. So that's going to be coming up up soon. So we're going to be the crew's going to be putting on their suits again as they get closer to space station. Doing repeating their leak checks, making sure that the that the suits are 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 tight after they've uh, mm -hmm. redonned them at this point. Uh, they'll uh, then begin the the preparations for the integrated operations. And so we have a series of, of procedures that SpaceX runs and, and NASA runs and the, and the ISS and the, and the Dragon vehicle run together. It's really sort of a four, four operator input to this procedure and all the steps have to interface with each other just so as they come up, they'll, they'll come up from behind and underneath the space station. Uh, they'll reach what we have these different waypoints along the rendezvous trajectory. And so the first one is going to be waypoint zero as, as it enters into integrated operations. So this is mm -hmm. directly below the space station. Uh, radially uh, underneath the space station, and that there's a there's a burn there that will have the the dragon begin an arc up around and in front to intercept the docking axis of the space stations. This is on the velocity vector as as the space station's flying through the space. It's got a, a direction that's going that's creating a vector for that velocity. The the dragon will come up and intercept that, so we'll basically be looking at it eye to eye, right in the from the space station. Right in the eye. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's right gonna, in the eye. Yeah, it's going to be about 220 meters out in front of the space station. Yeah. It'll intercept that and it'll start moving automated towards uh, towards the space station. Uh, after uh, that that motion towards space station initially begins, the software then causes a automatic extension of the docking mechanism. The docking mm -hmm. mechanism has a soft capture ring that sort of extends and and that extends so it has some damping capability w with the contact so it doesn't uh, put too many loads into the combined vehicles. That thing gets extended. The hooks get 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 ready, and then we'll we'll have uh, a SpaceX will command a hold. This will stop them in that position there. We'll get ready for the second part of the manual flight testing. Oh. So this test is, is really, if you think about a pilot uh, trying to, to fly a test vehicle, you know, if you were going to do an aircraft carrier run and, and, and do a landing there, this is giving you that visual reference on the, on the runway with that option there. You have 
a good view of, of distances. You've got uh, navigation systems that are tuned in and now uh, communicating with the space station. They use what are called LIDAR. These things are, are basically lasers that have a reflective beam. It, it bounces off some pre-positioned reflectors that we know where they are, are on the space station. Hmm. That tells us both the range and what the rate of closure is. And it can also calculate geometrically uh, you know, what the angles are to to know that the orientation is right, that the distance is right, that the range is right. So we'll have that all locked on. Now the crew is able to take back over on those displays, that, that manual piloting, and they're able to do a, a sort of canned series of maneuvers to say, you know, how does this feel? I trained this a bunch on a computer on the ground. Does it feel like that? Does it look like that? If I put in two pulses to the left, does it? do I get the same you know, punch out of that as I got out of it on the, on the ground simulator? Mm -hmm. Did I use the same amount of fuel? Did my inertial navigation system measure the same acceleration? Mm -hmm. uh, they'll do it in, in, in multiple axes to see that they've got that right. Then, uh, then as, as that comes to a complete, they'll put it back into a hold state and we'll do another go pole and, and uh, resume the automated approach towards space station. So this is as, as they come in. At this point, they're maybe 170 meters from ISS when they start to resume the automated approach. They'll move there forward to about 20 meters away from ISS. The vehicle comes to a last pause. We'll do our final go-no-go no go at that point, making sure ISS, yep, we're still right. The lighting's looking good. The communications is looking solid. The crew has good uh, visuals. The Dragon systems are healthy. We'll give the final go, and, uh, and they'll resume the approach for docking. That's when we get the contact mechanisms drive together, uh, the hooks drive, and get a hard mate of uh, the two vehicles, and we've got a, a new spaceship on station. That's going to be an exciting time for it sure. Is. Yeah. Now there's a couple technologies on the space station as I think that are that are helping with all of this. You talked about the hooks being driven. There's a there's a docking adapter right at the front of the space station where Dragon is aiming towards. That's the international docking adapter, and that's been designed specifically to fit Dragon. Yep. This uh, so the international docking adapter on the space station is uh, is designed really to be a universal docking adapter mm. to be compatible with a standard uh, for, for the docking mechanisms. It's, it's a common standard for docking vehicles. And so the Boeing vehicle will have a comparable docking system that will go to it. SpaceX built their own docking adapter on the Dragon side to interface with the common interface on, on the space station. I was actually one of the lead flight directors. I was, was the lead flight director for the spacewalk that went and installed this docking adapter. All so right, cool. this is all really coming full circle to me <laughs> to have have that docking adapter installed on, on one of the EVAs I got to work with, uh, with uh, uh, Jeff Williams and, and, and uh, um, Kate Rubens. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so uh, as they come together and, and contact, we have that soft capture mechanism that I talked about. That's going to damp it out, and that they sort of retract that soft capture mechanism. We'll see some indications mm -hmm. that, the, that, the, that they're driven together. They then uh, drive those hooks, which means that hard mate. They'll then repress that vestibule, the space between the, the Dragon and the ISS. The ISS crew, Chris Cassie, will come down and, and uh, open up. Uh, the ISS side of the hatch, the Dragon crew will open up the Dragon side of the hatch, and uh, they'll come. They'll come out. There'll be there'll be some uh, big hugs and and a, <laughs> and a few uh, shared high fives. I know from the PAO perspective, we're looking to get all of that. We we want to see all those hugs and high fives for I'll, sure. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> um, so so from the uh, from the docking perspective. The docking adapter you, you talked about it was it was designed a certain way to fit multiple different vehicles, and SpaceX had to design the docking system to make sure it fit. So it seems like there was a couple things at play there. There was the there was the size of the docking ring. There was the I guess the shape where the hooks aligned. Like everything had to kind of kind of match up. That's how that technology really works. 
Yeah, correct. Okay. Ex exactly. So you know that talks about the structural interface. Yeah. Um, I've already talked about the the lidars to be able to give a, mm -hmm. alignment and range. Other systems that come together. There's a, a, a communication system that's called C2V2. It sounds yeah. sort of like a, a Star Wars droid, but yeah. it's uh, it's a, a common communications for visiting vehicles. So this is a um, a radio uh, uh, beacon that will be able to transmit uh, both data and telemetry, voice and then even video, and as, as the dragon comes up and we, as the signal strength gets stronger, we sort of up the bandwidth and up the, the uh, telemetry rates to be able to get the added capability of the voice and the video. So we're gonna have a great view uh, hmm. in the control center of the, of the center line video looking right down the nose of dragon as it comes towards ISS. We saw the same thing on, on demo one, it was a great view. Uh, also a fantastic yeah. view, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what that, so it's like um, you talked about Tedris before, you said the dragon is talking with Tedris for, through a lot of this flight, but there is this part where it's where it's close to the International Space Station where it's talking with the International Space Station, sharing data, video, audio. Right, correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, so the C2V2 is how they talk to the space station. Yep. They have S-band that allows them to talk to Tedris satellites or to ground stations uh, to be able to do that. The mm -hmm. ISS is then you know, talking back to Dragon through the C2V2. ISS has its own S-band. It also has a KU band, which able, is able to give a slightly higher data rate, so we're able to get you know, a lot of the video from ISS mm -hmm. uh, to be able to get that to work. And both of these all have GPS systems that are able to take the relative GPS signals along them and, and calculate the distance from each other. Yep. Um, and, and we'll be able to have that both the absolute and relative uh, GPS uh, as they're farther away and as they get closer. So what's Cassidy gonna be doing inside the space station throughout this whole docking uh, procedure? So Chris Cassidy um, is going to be in the cupola oh. uh, off of Node 3. He's going to be set up uh, where those windows are. There's a robotic workstation that has some of the, the camera displays. We're going to be taking the ISS views of Dragon as it comes in. We'll be able to look at. He'll also have a view from Dragon looking at station, the same one we'll be able to look at. And uh, on demo one, the crew members were responsible for, primarily res responsible for monitoring the approach and the final rendezvous. And so if they saw something wrong, it, it, there's these things called approach corridors, which are basically <laughs> these geometric boundaries that we place to say the vehicle has to be flying down this corridor. If it gets too far to the edge of this corridor, the software is going to kick it out and it's going to fly away. Well, we also yeah. have, have a crew member watching that, and if they see that happen, they can also send a command that would send it away. So oh. without a crew on Dragon on Demo 1, that responsibility really fell on the ISS crew members. On Demo 2, uh, the, the crew, Bob and Doug, have that prime responsibility. They've got the direct interface to the Dragon vehicle. We also have Chris will be monitoring from the space station, and he'll have, he'll have sort of a backup monitoring capability. He'll, he'll, he'll be trained. He'll be ready to send the commands to hold or retreat if necessary. But uh, as a general philosopher, we're going to let Bob and Doug be, be the prime in charge of their own spacecraft, and only if they had a problem would, would Chris have to step in. And I'm sure they would prefer it that way. Yeah. <laughs> very, um, very cool. All right, so they, so they will have help along the way. It docks. You talked about pressurization. Does that pressurization happen from the space station side or from the SpaceX side? We use uh, space station gas for that. Got we, it. We want, really want to preserve the Dragon consumables to be able to not spend it repressing a vestibule when we've got uh, a lot on the space station. It's just a much bigger capacity of the gas on our side. So yeah. uh, we'll come through and on on the uh, as the two hatches for as the two vehicles come together, Dragon has its hatch and ISS has it as its hatch. And so Chris will come in and open up a valve which will flow ISS gas into the space between the two hatches. That'll repress it up to about five PSI and we'll just wait. We'll sit there 
you know, as that gas has flown in, it's been um, it's expanded rapidly or, or uh, contract actually, uh, sorry, expanded uh, at the lower pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the surfaces have previously been exposed uh, to, to vacuum, so it may be cold. We're expecting as that temperature, as the gas warms up, uh, that it's going to have a pressure fluctuation. So we'll let that stabilize out. It's really hard to get a leak check when these temperature transients are causing the gas pressure to change. So we wait for a while for that to stabilize. Then we do a leak check, make sure that that those seals are tight, that the structure is hard, and we're not going to open up the hatches and blow our gas overboard. Mm -hmm. When we see that that's stable, then uh, then uh, Chris will remove a docking target off of the APAS hatch once it gets open. This was one of the targets that uh, that the Dragon crew will be monitoring to make sure they're aligned as they're coming in for the final docking. We'll get that out of the way, and the Dragon crew then opens up the hatch and, and gets it open. They come on board. All right. Now... Once they're on board, I like the way you describe this. You describe Dragon as like part of the International Space Station, sort of an extension or a module. But what are, what are Bob and Doug going to be responsible for with the Dragon while they're on board? While they're on board, uh, you know, going back to the fact that this is a test flight, and so yeah. there's going to be objectives we have throughout the mission to really demonstrate its capability to serve not just the Demo-2 crew, but also every crew that's going to come after them and want to use this. And so what can we mm -hmm. learn during this mission to be able to enhance the capability for future crews. Is the emergency equipment set up right? Are the, uh, are the handrails in the right space? Are we stowing the equipment in, in, in a good, good way? Do the communication systems work? So there's a series of tests. Some of them will happen over the first day or so. Some of them will happen throughout the, the docked timeframe. Some specific things we're gonna be looking at is we wanna make sure that we have good communication from a Dragon all the way down through the U.S. segment, through the Russian segment, to a Soyuz. So we'll have, uh, have some of the Russian crew go into a Soyuz. They'll power up their radios, and we'll make sure, is the audio signal across all those interfaces still strong? Is it loud and clear? That's important if there was you know, an emergency on ISS. Both crew members will go back to their own respective uh, uh, vehicles mm -hmm. and uh, then prepare for responding to the emergency. In some cases, that may even involve undocking. We want to make sure they're able to talk yep. uh, to be able to work through the situation together. We'll do that. Uh, they'll bring in a, a space station laptop and plug that into into Dragon, and we'll want to verify that it has a good good data connection and good command capability. There's some situations where the Dragon crew may need to send some commands to ISS, and so we'll make sure that, that those, those uh, laptops are getting good communication. Uh, we're going to be looking at things like... Uh, does the Wi? Do we get good Wi-Fi? You know, you think yeah. your times. You know, there's there's corners of your house that sometimes the Wi-Fi extender may not <laughs> yeah. get there, and you get a dead dead spot. And, sure. and so we're gonna, um, you know, we have the our our WAPS and Node two, which is kind of the adjacent module. We'll go and put some devices, put put some iPads in Dragon, and make sure that they're able to get good signal strength. And there's some files we update on those periodically, and just knowing we can do that from within Dragon, it makes us a little bit more efficient. We're gonna do some suit donning and doffing evaluations, and so making sure. You know these suits. What you know, our practicing experience so far has been donning these suits on the ground in one G. Mm -hmm. And so, what can we learn? What is there different techniques for doing it in zero G? Is it something you can do by yourself? Do you need help? Um, we'll be looking at that. We might be doing some sleep evaluations on the way up. There would have only been two crew members on future missions. That, uh, there's going to be as many as four crew members on these vehicles. So we might get some of the ISS crew to come say, "Hey, you know." If you were to, if you have four of us sleeping in here, where are you going to put your sleeping bag? This is my spot. <laughs> uh, so they'll they'll try that out, see how that may work. Um, other things uh, would be you know testing where they stow hardware so that's accessible but not in the way, um, hmm. so forth. Okay, 
Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot just to do with Dragon, and then you already mentioned that they have some space station duties as well. They have they have experiments, they have spacewalks that they can do, so they're 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 ready to to be on board for for all of this. So yeah, that's the, awesome. The uh, vehicle traffic pattern is full. You know, yeah. So so the HTV uh, nine mission is going to be docking just a few days prior uh, to the Dragon arrival, yeah. and and uh, you know having led one of the HTV missions in the past, I know that that. that you know, you typically when you have a full ISS crew, you know, it is a busy time getting racks <laughs> transferred, getting the science experiments offloaded and so forth, and then the EVAs with the batteries that they're bringing up. So doing this now with, with uh, you know, the, the three ISS crew members and now Bob and Doug add into it, it's going to be a busy time making sure Dragon's looking healthy, doing all the uh, tests I just described. Yep. And then in addition to that, they're going to be looking at, uh, at the ability to do uh, the spacewalks, get these new batteries installed, mm -hmm. if we can fit that into the time frame, in addition to all just the station maintenance and science experiments that are going to be going on on a, on a rolling basis. Whew. Yeah, it's going to be a very busy time. It is. Now, focusing on the Demo-2 mission, of course, there's the whole aspect of coming home. So what does the getting ready for undocking look like? So we have to... Getting ready for undocking, we have to look at, the, at a lot of the weather. Mm -hmm. And so I talked about how the locations that that are the prime splashdown locations are off the east coast of Florida. Yep. And then a backup location near Pensacola. Well, you may have noticed that sometimes in, in the summer, uh, the, the weather around Florida can be a little variable. And so <laughs> uh, we don't want to bring uh, the dragon home in adverse weather conditions. So we're mm -hmm. going to be looking a good eye on what the winds are doing, what the rain's doing, uh, really try to pick the, the best day so that not just our prime location has good weather, but also our backup location has good weather. And uh, we'll be looking at those forecasts. We'll be uh, doing some some checkouts of the vehicle as, as Dragon would have been uh, uh, in sort of a quiescent state for a lot of the dock time frame. We're going to do these weekly wake-ups where you know it goes into a semi-power-down state for the week, and then uh, you know every Wednesday we power it up and look at some of the oh. systems, make sure that those are looking good, put it back to sleep. Cool. Uh, in preparation for undocking, there's the, some emergency equipment that, that lives on that was uh, temporarily stowed in Dragon. We'll have to stow that back on ISS for the next mission to come along. Uh, they'll do some tests of their seats. Uh, the seats actually have this uh, variable actuator that, that makes it change the angle for whether you're descending or when do you, whether you, you, the angle you want to be at for splashdown. Oh, cool. Make sure that mechanism's working. Um, power up and make sure the, the navigation systems are all working, the power systems are all looking good. Uh, then you know that morning the crew will uh, get up, put their suits on as they did on the on day of launch, and and do their leak checks and and basically undo and back out of the the um, sequence for the docking that I talked about prior. So this will be you know getting uh, getting undocked from station, loose, releasing those hooks, doing a series of burns to get away from space station, and that starts phasing them back towards the cape and where they can splash down. You know, a lot of those checks I said are driven largely going to be on um, uh, based on the weather, hmm. the the amount of time to get from the space station to the water, that's another variable. It depends on the phase angle between where the space station is and where the, where, where, uh, the splashdown location is. And so some days that may be something that can happen in six days and in six hours. Some days it may take two days to be, be able to get down to the ground. Oh, wow. We have extra capability on the Dragon to be able to accommodate that variability. And even, it, even if uh, they have to spend extra time in the water to, to get them pulled out, we've got extra capability there as well. Okay, very cool. Now, is that whole thing automated, or are they doing some of those manual tests again? Uh, we don't have any manual tests planned. They certainly have, have uh, some capabilities, uh, mm -hmm. but the, the um, sequence is, is automated uh, for those phasing burns. Uh, I would say, you know, the phasing burns are, are you know, to say automated is also automated with augmentation from the ground to be able to, 
verify burn timing and trajectories and so forth. Um, the reentry sequence itself is an automatic sequence and the parachute deploy. The crew is able to monitor the performance during, during reentry and, and if they don't see the parachutes deploy when they're expecting them, they have the ability to deploy the parachutes as it comes down and, and splashes down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an automated system which is supposed to cut the parachutes so that the, the parachutes don't drag the capsule across the top of the water. If that doesn't happen, the crew can fire some pyros which will jettison those parachutes. Ah. They have the ability to uh, re-upright the capsule with a with an uprighting system if that hasn't happened automatically, uh, and then you know they'll they'll basically await rescuing the capsule until SpaceX is able to come up. They have this have a big vessel called the Go Navigator off of off of the Cape that that will be pre-positioned out there, and they'll be able to get uh, uh, that close to the crew, and then they send out some fast boats with some. Uh, forces to come out, oh, get the hatch open, get the crew out of the seat, uh, make sure that they're good. Hoist the, the dragon up onto the deck of the Go Navigator and get them out of the get them out of the capsule. That time, where they'll get hug, hugs from their flight docks and <laughs> and uh, start motoring back to port. Yeah, and I know uh, just just listening to some of the briefings that happened today, everyone said every, it was pretty universal. That was saying everyone's going to be. I, I know I know there was even something about their heart being up to their neck. Uh, yeah. Right until a, a splashdown and you see the crew safe. That's yeah. that's 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 how long this thing is. It's not it's not like oh phew sigh of relief whenever they get to station. It's yeah, really it's, the whole it's, time. It's really you get them out of, out of the capsule on yep. the on the deck of the boat, right? On the deck uh, of the you boat. Know, you, you know you know there's been a lot of effort for even for that period post splashdown to make sure that we've practiced the sequence and and the choreography. Uh, after splashdown to be able to get them up. You know, you, you sort of, you hear, you know, I, I'm a mountain climber and there's a lot of times where you talk about people will go and climb and get on the top of this big mountain and, you know, they'll be halfway down and that's where the accident happens, right? And so you, yep. you never want to, you know, lighten up at the last minute when you think you're safe and then find that something goes wrong there. So you you, you, you keep your radar up all the way to the crew gets out of that vehicle and they're they're safe. So. Now you talked about the the undocking and, and splash down the whole the whole deorbit sequence it's, you said it's mostly automated are there emergency scenarios or is it really kind of based on location uh, there are emergency scenarios where I the see. crew can redesignate where they're where they're landing uh, you wouldn't typically do this for a, a nominal reentry burn to one of their planned locations mm-hmm. but if there was a problem with dragon and, and the crew had to pick a place to come down as I said it can land anywhere in any body of water around the, around the globe and so they have the ability to redesignate a landing target. They can say, okay, you know, maybe, you know, I need to get down. The best place along my trajectory is going to be, uh, you know, off the coast of Spain. And so I'm going to try to target that spot maybe. And, mm-hmm. and they'll have a series of tables on a, on a tablet that tells them, tells them uh, locations based on weather and, and mm-hmm. trajectory capabilities. But also SpaceX on the ground is continually monitoring and sort of picking out their preferred uh, emergency landing sites. And they'll be able to communicate with them and say, hey, the weather's looking good here. This is a good spot to get to that you can reach to so, so target this spot. So they have that capability to, to choose a landing location and execute the burn there on their own if they need to. Okay, very cool. Yep. Now, all this work, this is, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. And, and we've gone through really an excruciating amount of detail for, for this mission. And I absolutely loved it. This was, I was so excited to yeah, do sir, this. Yes, sir, I can nerd out a little bit. Yeah, no, this is, I loved it. I was, I was asking all these, all, all these intricate questions. But really, what, if, you, if you pull back, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work from a lot of different people. We have, we have Mission Control Houston. We have, we have the Florida teams. We have California. We got to work with all these different places. I, I know when, one of the, I think one of the abort scenarios uh, for even a launch is the crew might end up like somewhere close to Ireland or something like that. So, so working just thinking literally across, across the globe with all of these different people. What does this mean for the future of human spaceflight? What are we really trying to do here? You know, if, if we've done our job well, uh, 
then what people will see is a mission that looks easy. <laughs> um, and uh, in many cases, you know, I've seen this throughout my career in spaceflight, nothing about it is easy. Um, <laughs> but, but if we do it right, it looks easy. And, and so that's what I'm hoping people are able to see, and, uh, but just know that, that there are people that have that spent a lot of time and effort, and, and it is their, their life's honor to be able to do so and, and to be able to inspire, you know, whether it's you know, the, the kids or, or the grandparents um, on what we can do when we, when we come together and put our differences aside. And, and whether you're a new company or an old agency or, you know, you're you know, a fresh out of college or someone who's, who has decades of spaceflight experience with you, you know, everyone's got something they can add. You, know, you don't have to be um, a mechanical engineer, you know, whether it's, you know, teachers or scientists, you know, everyone come together, we can unite. And, and uh, you know, I mentioned this earlier, like, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time, certainly for people, you know, there's, yeah. there's um, you know, people that are, are going through hard economic times, uh, certainly health issues and so forth. And so, mm-hmm. you know, here's a point where we can all sort of, you know, we've seen the best of, of the people in this world lately, you know, overcoming adversity. And, and, and I'm inspired and humbled by that. And I hope that this can be one more thing that, that, that people can look to on, on May 27th and, and be inspired in a similar way of, of what we can overcome when we want to. And then you look forward to, with the, the human lander uh, contracts that were just uh, that were just announced by NASA and yeah. what this means to be able to go to the moon. I mean, this, this is absolutely directly in path to be able to enable that capability, show that we can <laughs> have these partnerships with these companies, that we can launch rockets with people on them from America, go up to the space station, keep the space station going, and now like use those same partnerships and those relationships to be able to, to uh, demonstrate how we make those things worse so we can go to the moon. We will be on the moon in, in this decade, right? That, I love your that exci- is what it's about. Yeah, I love your excitement. This is awesome. So, so what, what I love about talking with you is you're so, you're so involved in the details and you know every aspect of this meeting, but you've also seen an evolution. You've been within Mission Control for a long time, and I'm sure it's not been the same this entire time. I'm sure you've seen things change. What are some of those things that you've seen? And, and maybe, maybe in a positive, maybe in a negative, maybe in just a... Maybe it is scaling up to this this grand grander endeavor. What have you seen in Mission Control specifically? You know, when we, you know, I, I laugh about this. When I when I first started working in EVA, uh, you know, some of the the computing power with the the consoles that we had, um, and and you know what we had as sort of tools in Mission Control at that point versus what we have now, it's really just a different ball game. I, mean, I remember, you know, we had a, a calculator that actually literally someone got when they opened up a free checking account from a bank, and that was the calculator we we're using to to determine the consumables remaining for a, for an EMU on a spacewalk. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, now you look at the different capabilities we have on consoles with, you know, the the modeling of of orbital parameters and being able to to you know, run these Monte Carlo scenarios that, that play out all the different variabilities with, you know, to three sigmas of, of what could go this way and that. And, uh, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is, you know, you, you, regardless of, of how many much tools you have, it is still there is a human in the loop. Um, and, uh, you know, the role, whether it's the role of the flight director, the, the mission director, the Capcom or the core, which is the SpaceX equivalent of, of a Capcom, the flight controllers, you know, it is the people that have prepared for that. And that this is sort of the universal concept, people that are prepared to be in that role and to know their systems as well as, as they do and to know their weaknesses, know their strengths and be able to make a judgment call hmm. on uh, what is the right way to do because you know, we're doing things that have never been done before. So it's not like you can fall back necessarily onto this experience from the past. Oh, this feels that way, I do this. Uh, we may f- we will see things happen for the first time here, and we'll have to to um, 
sort of write the book on how to do some of these things. And, and so the human element is what I look at as, as the constant in human spaceflight. As much as we, as we automate things and put more capabilities into technology and AI and self-driving cars, you know, you know, you know, we are a race of humans and we would <laughs> like to explore. You talked about, you talked about if, if uh, someone's watching this, the, maybe the goal is to make it look easy. But maybe if you had to pick one or maybe a few things that you think would be important for people to know while they're watching... To, to talk about all the effort that's maybe going in or has gone in to this moment. What are some of those key takeaways you want people to remember whenever they're watching to show the amount of effort it's, it's taken to get to this point? Yeah, let me give you a great example. This is a, this is a great question. This, this is an example, and I've actually listened to some, some uh, podcasts talking about spaceflight and, and, and some of the challenges that people have had. So something that is a, is a technology you think that's been around forever, and then you think, like, this is something that we should not be learning about, mm -hmm. you know, parachutes. Yeah. Parachutes are something that have existed for, you know, parajumpers in, in the military going back, you know, you know, back to the World Wars, and, and these are things we had, you know, for the, the Mercury and the Gemini and Apollo, and we know how to open up a piece of fabric and slow down a vehicle so it can splash <laughs> into some water. You think that that's pretty simple. Let me tell you, the complexity that goes into designing and testing a parachute system to have this trailing deployable thing go out and have it always go out more or less the same way to have it be able to inflate and take loads in a way that is going to de decelerate this capsule, to be able to, to slow this vehicle down from, you know, from the super uh, uh, high speeds as reentering the atmosphere, to be able to get it to, to gently kiss the water, um, <laughs> that is complex. You've got fabrics flowing with highly dynamic flow. You have this thing inflate slightly asymmetrically. This this you know, line is going to take more stress than this line, and it could it could break. You have one parachute inflate before the other one. It's now going to take more of the load. And so getting to them to inflate in a uniform way and the complexity of the materials, even like the stitch pattern you use to weave these pieces of fabric together may mean the difference between them ripping open and not. And so to say, hey, we're just taking, you know, this is a technology you had back in Apollo. What's new? Why is this so hard? This is why it is hard, and this takes repeatability. And you know, there may be cases where you may drop a parachute 20 times, and on the 21st time, it fails in a way that you realize your design needs to be fixed. And so, this is is something that shows you know what what makes something look simple, uh, but there is actually an enormous amount of effort and complexity in engineering that went in, in to make sure that this is right. And so, we just found out that SpaceX completed its fifth system test today and All so right. this is a big big milestone <laughs> to get to, to this point they you know this is a great example they were testing a design of these parachutes on the mark twos for a while and they were they're they're showing success with these parachutes but there was some corner cases where we were starting to see some failures and this was late in the game um to be able to to consider redesigning and so they, mm. they looked at being able to to be able to you know do some patchwork on the mark twos in the end it just came down to that design needed to be redone uh and to be able to have the the integrity to recognize that such a complex system you have to now redesign within a year before flight and be able to get that, that test campaign out. Really hats off to SpaceX to be able to, to shift course, you know, incorporate some modifications, test the heck out of it, mm -hmm. and be able to complete the fifth, uh, this, you know, when I say fifth system level test, this is the complete integrated system. There's been component tests matching up through measuring the drogues and the individual parts of the mains throughout this point, but uh, you know, this is, this is sort of our last big test of the integrated systems, and, and this is a huge accomplishment to get us ready to launch. What was really going through my head was if, if, you're, watching, if you're watching the parachute, right? If you're watching this, this Dragon 2 splash down in the water, the difference between 
your average viewer just watching this thing, oh, look at that come down, really cool. Oh, those parachutes look pretty. Look at that splashdown, awesome. And the the same same exact view, but a parachute maybe designer or engineer watching that, just like please, all my all, all my work, you yeah. know, just like hold together. Come on, it's it's taken so long. Please work, and it's just. It, it, to just imagining those two different people watching the same exact moment with completely different emotions, it must be, you, you can tell. It's just that emotional feeling and just, just trying to connect with that, how much work has gone into just, just that one aspect of this entire mission. Yeah, but you know, that's one of the great things about this kind of mission is that yeah. you can look at it with, with the eyes of someone not in the industry and you, and you can look at a rocket launch and still appreciate it and still get the excitement out of it as someone who might be an engineer who may have designed a throttle valve on you know a, a, a fuel line that's going into the into one of the engines and and each one of you can look at that and still see feel like the base emotion of the liftoff of the landing of the docking and and it, it's all there it's, it's really a every person's uh, event to watch now i want to end with this because at this point, I think we can say you you you, keep, you talked in the beginning about you feel like one of the rookies, maybe one of the new guys, but you're you're leading this mission. You're you're a leader now, and you're in this position where you're working with all of these different flight controllers. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to be a part of this, maybe sometime down the future. And I think I think it's going to even be a little bit different from now. We're working together with SpaceX. That's totally different from how we did things 15 years ago, which is totally different from even before that. It, it, there's there's going to be a future here of how these things work. What lessons do you want to pass on from your experience to those future flight controllers that might want to be part of this part of this down the road? Well, if you look down the road, you know, NASA is going full throttle, just pedal to the metal to get us to Mars. Mars is the destination, yeah. and that is going to take uh, anyone who has something to add. There is a place, and so you look at the the partnerships with the HLS contract, whether it's with the the Blue Origin or with SpaceX or with Dynetics and the companies that support them and are part of those contracts. You know that is an incredible uh, effort to be able to come in and, and be able to get these the the expertise from uh, multiple sources, multiple vendors, and th this is gonna take people, you know, not just over the next three years, not just for the next five years, this is this is the long haul. We're going to the moon to stay, we're going to Mars, we're gonna go to the Mars to stay. And so, you know, if there's, if I look back at, um, at what we've learned and what has gotten us to this point, and then when I look forward, you know, some of the things that will be universal, there's a human element, right? Don't forget about the human element. You're going there to bring humans. We, we've brought rovers to, to Mars. We certainly uh, have been inspired and amazed by what those have been able to do. But putting you know a human on Mars, putting a human on, on on the Moon, being able to reach reach down and pick up that you know that rock or that thing, or be able to find that discovery, that's going to take the human creativity. That's going to take the ingenuity. Don't don't listen. Don't don't turn a blind eye to your gut. A lot of times, if something feels wrong, you know, this is going back to you know, back going back to my Malcolm Gladwell, you know, <laughs> listen to your gut. Full it, circle. You know, it, it 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 is telling you something, and and uh, you know, as you have your passions and have you dived in and you've really devoted the time to learn something, the ten thousand hours. If something feels wrong, it might be wrong, and so don't. You know, when the hair in the back of your head stands up, this is what thing, these things I'll tell new flight controllers, and and I share with other flight directors, like listen to that, listen to what that's telling you and, and be part of it. But then also don't be afraid to change. Don't be afraid to fail. Um, and, and that's one thing that a lot of times we can be afraid of what a failure might mean to be to the program, what it might mean from an optics perspective, what it might mean politically, what setback this might mean to schedule, who cares? 
You know, you fail, you're able to push the envelope, you're able to find the weaknesses in your systems and find where they're not working much faster by trying it, testing it, working it out, and then go redesign it versus pencil whipping something to death with the requirements and the PowerPoints and the engineering. You know, those are all needed and there's absolutely a place for it, but, but don't be afraid uh, of failing, but fail in the right way, fail, fail in a way that, that makes you uh, better and stronger as a team going forward. Zeb, I love your passion. Best of luck to you for and, and to the entire team, really, for, for this mission coming up. There's a lot of hard work, and, and we've, we've gone through every intricate detail today, and I really, it's, I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm going to be right there with yeah. you in the room, and, I, and I'm, I'm very, very excited. Zeb, I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. This, is, this has been so super fun, so thank you. Giddy up. Let's go do it. <laughs>